Uh, Let's pray together as we uh, turn to God's word this morning, his living word. Father, thank you that you speak. Thank you that you have always spoken. You spoke uh, the universe into being. You spoke the earth into being. You spoke us into being. And you continue to speak through your word by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray this morning that our hearts and minds may be open and attentive to hear your voice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 51, which we will get to in a moment. But the reason we're sort of taking a break from our studies in Luke's Gospel at the moment. And last Sunday we looked at Psalm 139. This morning I picked Psalm 51 because it's a psalm of penitence. And we're in the season of Lent. And the season of Lent is a time for um, self-examination. It's a time of reflection. And it's a time of penitence and repentance. Uh, it's a season before we come to the great celebration of Easter. And it's, uh, it's kind of one of those things, because it's kind of cyclical, we go around every year and we have the same seasons every year. We can kind of become a bit complacent. These things can lose their impact because we think, oh, well, I did that last year. I'm going to do it next year. We kind of go through the motions uh, and then we get to Easter and just stuff our faces with chocolate. But actually, repentance is so important and so key. And I think particularly, as I think I've probably said before... In a season in which we find ourselves in, I think God is calling us as a church to repentance. I was just reflecting again this week on uh, some words which uh, you may be very familiar with from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. And I was reflecting on them again this week and just thinking how contemporary, how pertinent is what God says all these hundreds, thousands of years ago. Uh, 2 Chronicles 7.13, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. And I was just thinking, wow, in the last, I mean, you know, if you've been watching the news in the last two or three years, what we have seen in the last two or three years is that increasingly um, the heavens are being shut up so there is no rain. It's not that the world overall is becoming dry, but what climate change does is it moves the weather around. It moves the rainfall around. So increasingly, some parts of the world are very, very wet and other parts are increasingly dry. So a year ago, um, Alan was out in Australia mopping up um, after the, um, you know, the bushfires some of the worst in history. Um, California, forest fires, some of the worst in history. A couple of years ago in southern Africa, Cape Town was within a couple of weeks of running out of water because of the drought across southern Africa. We need to wake up and see what God is doing. Command locusts to devour the land. Did you know that in 2018, the worst famine, uh, uh, the worst plague of locusts in history, in history began in East Africa and spread east and west. I was talking to friends in Pakistan uh, last summer. This plague of locusts had crossed over the Gulf and was spreading through southwest Pakistan, literally eating everything there is to be eaten. Or send a plague among my people. I don't even know, there's nothing, I don't need to say anything about these things are happening. The heavens are shut up, there is no rain. Locusts, a plague. 
When these things happen, God says what we must do. And the challenge is, well, are we doing the things that God says that we should do in this season? He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. God shows us, he gives us signs and says, when you see these signs, this is what you should do. So as the people of God, are we responding in the way that he, I feel deeply challenged by these things at the, um, at the moment. And I've, I'm kind of, I've committed myself at the moment daily to humble myself before God. And he is showing me some things that I need to um, uh, just some aspects of my character that I need to be humble about. I'm praying, I'm seeking God's face daily and asking God to show me my wicked ways that I may turn from. I don't want to miss what God is doing in these days. It's a season for repentance. God shows us these things. They are warnings and we need to respond to them. So we're in this season of penitence. And this psalm, Psalm 51, is a a psalm written from a man who was penitent. Uh, We're not going to read the whole of this psalm. There's there's way too much to unpack this morning. We're probably going to just get the first seven or eight verses done. Uh, But right at the beginning, if you've got a Bible open in in front of you, um, you'll notice that before the psalm actually begins, there's, there's often a little introduction to the psalms that explains why they were written and who wrote them. And right at the beginning of Psalm 51, we read, it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David. Who's the David? He's King David, the greatest king of the Old Testament. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So that's why David wrote the psalm. It's written after the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So we just need to spin back a little bit and uh, just remind ourselves of the context, the circumstances under which Nathan had to come to David with this message. Because in David's life, it is, it's, just, it's a train wreck. It's a car crash. It's, it, um, it's the worst thing that happens to, um, uh, to David. And it's a situation that is of his own making. So I'm just going to recap a little bit, just to set the context for uh, why the psalm was written. David, if we spin back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, David has finally become the king of Israel. And he becomes the greatest king over Israel. He's an incredibly successful king. He becomes the king. He starts to defeat God's enemies. He defeats the Philistines, the greatest of the enemies of the people of God. Um, The Ark of the Covenant which has been taken from Jerusalem, the ark that represents the very presence of God in the midst of the people of God, the ark is finally brought back to Jerusalem as the focus of their worship. Uh, God is uh, promises, makes great promises to David. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God makes this promise, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever, amazing promises that God makes to David, and David promises to follow him. 
Uh, More victories follow as David takes his army out and defeats the enemies of God's people. We read 2 Samuel 8 verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for his people. He's a good king. He's a merciful king. He's a wise king. He's a gracious king. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, Most of David's life... He has, uh, the previous king, Saul, has been trying to kill him. Saul becomes jealous of David, jealous of David's success, Um, repeatedly tries to kill David. David always honours the God-appointed king. So even though Saul is trying to kill David, David honours him. After Saul is killed and David comes to the throne, David says, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? He's an amazing man, full of God's grace and mercy. He says, is there, any, is there any living relative of Saul? This man who spent his life trying to kill me, is there any living relative left so I can show kindness to him? Because David was best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. David is an amazing, gracious, successful, wise, just king. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, David again is out at the head of his army. We read um, 2 Samuel 10, 18, uh, uh, the enemies of Israel flee before Israel. David killed 700 of their charioteers, 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He struck down Shobak, the commander of their army. So the picture basically is, you know, David is at the top of his game. He's been called by God. He's been blessed by God. And he is having enormous success because of God's blessing. He is defeating God's enemies and he, is, he has it all. He has it all. God has blessed him. And he's serving God. And then, suddenly, it all goes horribly wrong. And so often, for church leaders who are blessed by God and given so much by God, suddenly... They fall from grace and it all goes horribly wrong. Even in our individual lives, as we're seeking to follow Jesus, we can be doing so well. And suddenly it all goes horribly wrong. Why does it all go horribly wrong for David? I think because he he takes his eye off the ball and becomes complacent. He takes his eye off the ball and becomes complacent. In our Christian lives, as we're following Jesus, it is so easy to be deceived to take our eye off the ball... And everything comes crashing down. And David, who has everything, who's been so successful, blessed by God, prospered by God, suddenly it's, it's a train wreck. What goes wrong? We need to learn. We will get to Psalm 51, don't worry. But we need to learn why it goes wrong. And because the way in which David responds is so important if we find ourselves in this situation. So what goes wrong? David begins to make mistakes. I think because he's become, he's become complacent. He becomes complacent. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, remember, when kings go off to war, David's a king. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Um, David remained in Jerusalem. David remained in Jerusalem. He's a king. He's supposed to be out at the head of his army. He's supposed to be in the thick of battle. But this time, he's taken his eye off the ball. And he sends Joab out at the head of his army to do it. And David stays behind. He's not where God has called him to be. If we take ourselves out of the battle, 
If we get complacent, if we think, oh, I'll let other people build the kingdom of God. I'll let other people do the work. I'll just sit back for a while. Not a good place to be. We need to be in a place where God wants us to be. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Nothing wrong with that. He can't sleep. He gets up. He wanders around on the roof. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. She's naked and she was very beautiful. And David sees her. Now, what should he have done? He should have taken one look and then he should have gone quickly back into his house, had a cold shower and gone back to bed. But he didn't. Men, how often do we begin to make this same mistake? The first glance, David couldn't help. You can't help the first glance. It's what you do with the second glance. Do you let your eyes linger? David makes this fatal mistake. He lets his eyes linger and suddenly desire is birthed in him. A few weeks ago, we were looking at the book of James, written by Jesus's brother. And James writes this in his letter. He says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, well, it is full grown, gives birth to death. And that's exactly what we see happen in David's life on this occasion. And it's exactly the trap that we may fall into. David lets his eyes linger on this beautiful woman. He still has the opportunity to get to avoid this mess. He could still go home and have a gold shower and get back into bed. But he doesn't. He sent someone to find out about her. And then he sends for her. She came to him and he slept with her. Really, when you think about it, really, she didn't really have a lot of choice. David raped her. You think of the power dynamic going on here. David is the king. No one can question what he does. She is the wife of a soldier. She has no choice in this matter. David, this amazing king, has so taken his eye off the ball that he rapes this woman. And then it gets worse because she falls pregnant. He's still, he's, you know, at this point is bad, but he could, you know, repent at this point. He could start to recognize, but he doesn't. He makes it even worse. He thinks, how can I get away with what I've done? He sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who's with the army fighting a battle. He calls for him, he gets him sent back home, invites him for dinner, gets him drunk and says, go home, sleep with your wife. So everyone will think the baby is yours and not mine. David tries twice, but Uriah is such an honourable man, he won't go home. He says, how can I go home when my friends... Uh, My fellow countrymen are sleeping in a field, risking their lives, fighting a battle. How can I go home and sleep with my wife? He won't do it. David tries twice. Uriah won't do it. So David sends him back to the battle and then sends a message to Joab saying, put Uriah in the heat of the battle and then withdraw everyone else so he gets killed. This is David. This amazing king of Israel who is ruling so well, who has it all. He takes his eye off the ball and now he's he's riding a coach and horses through the Ten Commandments, destroying everything around him. And he can't see it. He's so deceived himself. I was, um, you know, it's happened so often with church leaders that they deceive themselves. They take their eye off the ball. And so... Uh, Psalm 51, 
Well, we're all going to talk about Psalm 51, I promise. Uh, the introduction is, when the prophet Nathan came to David. So, 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. He shared its food drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. It's pretty obvious who is the subject of this little tale, isn't it? David can't see it. He so deceived himself. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that land four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now it's blindingly obvious to everyone else who the subject of this little tale is. It's David, isn't it? David doesn't see it until Nathan says, you are the man. You are the man. And then finally, suddenly, David wakes up from his spiritual fug and slumber and the lights go on. He smells the coffee and he realises, oh. What have I done? What have I done? 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And suddenly David comes to this realisation of what a, just what an awful, awful thing he has done. He has, um, he's committed adultery. He has raped. He's indulged his lust. He's abused his power. He has engineered the... Uh, the death of this woman's husband. It's the most appalling, tragic tale of the consequences of allowing desire, sinful desire, to overcome you. And suddenly David wakes up and realises what a total disaster he has made. And in response to all of that, he writes Psalm 51. And we're going to unpack a little bit, just probably the first seven or eight verses of Psalm 51. Because the, the, although David has got himself in such a mess and created, I mean, it really is a train wreck. And he lives with the consequences for the rest of his life. There are terrible consequences for, um, for himself, for Bathsheba, for his family, for his sons, for the rest of his reign. The consequences of what he's done, he has to live with. But... He finds grace, he finds mercy, he finds forgiveness, he finds restoration. No no matter how bad things may be in our lives, no matter what a mess we may make of things, there is always grace, mercy and forgiveness. That's what we learn. So, Psalm 51, verse 1. Um, David begins, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The thing that David does, what we so often do when we know we've, when we've messed up and we have wronged someone, you know, just think about if we, you know, in a relationship, in a marriage or whatever, and you, you, you know, you know that you've wronged the other person. The thing that we so often do is we say, well, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm really sorry, but, but I've done some really good things in the past. I know I've messed up. I know I've got this wrong. But look at my track record. 
you know, I've really got some things right here. And David could have done that. He could have said, well, look, I know I've, I've really messed up really badly, but look at all the battles that I won. Look at how I got the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. You know, there's, there's some good things on my score sheet. David doesn't appeal He doesn't try and justify himself. He doesn't appeal to any kind of righteousness that he thinks he has. He appeals to the mercy of God. That's his appeal. Have mercy on me, O God. Not because I've got some good things to show you. Not because I'm not all bad. Have mercy on me because of your unfailing love. Have mercy on me because of your great compassion. Have mercy on me because that's who you are, God. What an amazing place to begin when we have messed up. When we've got so much wrong. When we've made so many mistakes. Uh, I've learned in the last few years, uh, times when I've just messed up so badly and got things so badly wrong. and sinned so badly. To hear the voice of God saying, I still love you. Let's start from here. I still love you. Let's start from it. Because that's his character. David has made this awful mistake, but he knows enough about the character of God to know that he can come before him and say, have mercy on me, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. What a great God we have. A God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of forbearance, a God who puts up with our Sin. I was reminded as I was reading this of the, the passage in Luke's Gospel where the Pharisee and a tax collector go up to the temple to pray and the, ta- the Pharisee tries to justify himself and the tax collector won't even look up to heaven but he looks down and he beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. David knows he's got nothing to bring to the table other than to appeal to God's mercy. And we're the same. When we come in repentance, we don't come saying, God, I'm really sorry, but have mercy on me because I'm not all bad. He says, God, have mercy on me because that's who you are. And when we think about this, this, you know, the, the situation that David has got himself into, it couldn't be much worse. And yet David knows still that God will have mercy. There's, there's nothing we can do that is so bad that we get to a point of no return. He goes on, uh, verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Interesting thing, when, when David finally wakes up and realises what he's done, what does he say? Uh, 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say, although I know he would have been thinking this, he doesn't say, well, I've, I sinned against Bathsheba because I raped her. He doesn't say, I sinned against Uriah because I engineered his murder. He said, I sinned against the Lord. And now in the psalm, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. When we wrong each other, when we sin against each other, that's bad. But actually, the harm that we do is to our relationship with God. 
Remember the episode in, in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 2. There's an occasion right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where Jesus is teaching in a house and there's a huge crowd. The house is packed out and four friends bring to Jesus a paralysed man because they've heard about Jesus' reputation to heal. And they think if they can get their paralysed friend to Jesus, Jesus will heal him. They can't get into the house because of the crowd, so they break a hole in the roof and they lower the man down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus causes outrage by saying to the man initially, not be healed, not get up and walk, but son, your sins are forgiven. Now it makes no sense unless... Unless Jesus has a divine identity, it makes no sense. Because as far as we know, this paralysed man has never met Jesus. So whatever sins the paralysed man has committed, he hasn't committed them against Jesus. So why is Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven? It only makes sense if what the man has done to other people have caused offence to God. And our sins cause offence to God because when we sin against each other, when we wrong each other, we're not reflecting the image of God in which we are created. It's a sign that our relationship with God is broken and it needs to be fixed. When we sin, we hurt each other, but we also mar our relationship with God and we mar and spoil the image of God in which we are created. And David understands that. Yes, he has sinned against Bathsheba. He's sinned against um, Uriah. He needs to confess his sin before them, Bathsheba, and ask for her forgiveness. But primarily, he needs to come before God. And the same for us. Repentance is about turning towards God. It's not just about saying sorry and carrying on in the way that we were. It's about repenting and turning back to God. And that's what David is doing in this psalm. What he does in response to the car crash that he's created is he turns back to God. Verse 5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What happened to Psalm 139? If you were with us uh, last Sunday, we were looking at Psalm 139. And we read, um, verse 13, you created my inmost being. This is another Psalm of David. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Psalm 139, Jesus, um, David is saying to God, um, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Now Psalm 51, he's saying, uh, I was sinful at birth. What's going on here? Is, is, um, is God creating duds? Where does this sinful from birth arise? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, if you watched um, David Attenborough's um, series a few weeks ago, perfect planet. You only have to look at the natural world to see that we are fearfully and wonderfully made as human beings, part of creation. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. But we have this flaw that we are born with. The flaw is that from birth, our hearts are turned in on themselves. Our character is turned in on itself. From birth, we don't naturally reflect the image of God. We're turned in on ourselves. Where does that come from? You need to go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Perfect, unblemished, 
unrestrained relationship with the living God and then they rejected him. They rejected the living God. They turned their backs on him. And from that moment, this flaw entered our character. Uh, Paul writes about it in his letter um, to the Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Just as sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. It's a flaw embedded in all of us as human beings. It's what's termed the original sin. It comes from Adam and Eve's rejection of God, but we're born with it. It's a flaw within us. And in order to be the people that God has created us to be, we've got to address this fundamental flaw in our nature. I was just... um, on my desk at home to fill in later today is the, is the census, it's the annual census. Every 10 years in the UK we have to fill in the census. And I was just looking on the news this morning, I was reading a bit about it, and for the first time, this time on the census, the questions about um, gender and sexuality are, um, you know, basically you can fill in what you like. Because we live in an age where we can now um, self-create. We can decide what gender we want to have and we can decide whether you know what kind of sexuality we want to have and for the first time on the census you can put that in now that it seems to me um comes from the fact that as a as a society as a culture we've turned our backs on god we have rejected god we've broken our relationship with god and so the assumption that we made the assumption that we've made since the enlightenment is that the building blocks with which we create our identity there's nothing wrong with them the building blocks of your character and your identity, it's all pretty good. And so with those things, you can construct whatever identity you like. And no one can tell you any different. But this psalm and David's realisation and God's revelation remind us that actually the building blocks are fundamentally flawed. Surely I was sinful at birth. Our natural characteristic is not to reflect the image of God. It's to be turned in on ourselves. If there's, a, if there's a fatal flaw in the building blocks, then we need to fix that. And if you don't, then whatever, however you create yourselves, whether heterosexual, homosexual, asexual, whatever identity you create, it will always be flawed. You've got to address that fundamental breach in your relationship with God. Surely... I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Again, that's what repentance is all about. It's about turning back to the God of mercy who loves us. Verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear with joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. We started with, um, we started with good news. The good news is God's unfailing love and his great compassion. Then we've had the bad news of our sin and our transgression. And now we have more good news that God cleanses us 
Cleanse me with hyssop. Why hyssop? Hyssop is very significant in the Bible. It tells us all we need to know about how God cleanses us and how he cleans us. If we um, spin back to the book of Exodus and the story of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land, uh, the night that uh, the people of God were delivered, this is what um, Moses said to the people of Israel, the very first Passover meal. Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So when God delivers the people of Israel on the night that they leave slavery... And enter, begin to enter freedom, the blood of the lamb is painted on the door frames with hyssop. It's a symbol of cleansing and of purification. In the Old Testament law, if you were a leper and you were healed, you would go to the priest and the priest would sprinkle you with holy water. He'd sprinkle you with hyssop as a sign of your cleansing. If your house had mould, an infectious mould, and the mould was cleansed from your house. The priest would come and sprinkle your house with holy water, with hyssop, because it was a sign of cleansing and a sign of purification. So no surprise that when we get to John's Gospel, John chapter 20, the very last thing that Jesus does, almost with his last breath, as blood is pouring from his broken body on the cross is he says I am thirsty and a jar of wine vinegar was there so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips when he had received the drink Jesus said it is finished there's such beautiful symmetry to the bible such, be- such beautiful connections from events that happen thousands of years apart. As the people of God are being freed from slavery to freedom, a hyssop plant is used to paint the blood of the lamb on their doorframe so that death doesn't affect them. Jesus shedding his blood on the cross in the meal that we're about to share in this morning as we have communion. Jesus sheds his blood on the cross and right there is the hyssop plant as a reminder of God's cleansing how is it that God washes us so that we can be whiter than snow how is it that all of our wrongdoing can be washed away well it's because of the blood of Jesus and David even as he writes this psalm hundreds of years Before Jesus, who will come in succession to him, David understands the significance of what God is doing and what he will do. So in this season of repentance, this season of seeking God's face, of turning to him, let's be reminded of the good news that he is unfailingly loving. He has great Compassion. He is 
merciful, that we can come before him and we don't need to try and impress him or justify ourselves before him. We don't need to. He doesn't do any good. Doesn't, doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't win brownie points with the Lord. We bring nothing to the table. He brings everything. He brings everything. Our part is to acknowledge our wrongdoing, acknowledge that we have sinned, acknowledge that we're turned in on ourselves, we're selfish. Acknowledge that before him and then as we come to Jesus, so he cleanses us, he washes us so that we can be whiter than snow. As I say, we're going to um, uh, share in communion. If you've got bread and wine at home, do... um...